So we've been uh, working through a series for the last couple of months called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And this series is um, loosely, some of the ideas are loosely based on a book uh, by a guy named Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor in New York City. Um, and the kind of the quote that we've uh, really come back to each week as we think through this, again, this, this series is not, we're not teaching out of this book, but some of the ideas here uh, frame up how we're kind of talking about the subject. Um, here, here's the quote. He says, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so in the series, we're looking at what does it look like for us to be a community of love, to learn the skills that are necessary to love each other uh, as the Bible calls us to love. We recognize there's a gap between what we say about love and how we actually experience that in the community of faith. And so we have to unlearn some skills that we've learned growing up in terms of how we relate to one another in unhealthy ways. And we got to learn the skills of being a disciple in terms of what it looks like to relate to each other in a healthy kind of Christ-honoring Way And so today, we're going to be looking at uh, the, skills, this, the skills of living with integrity and integration. Living with integrity and integration. Now, you might ask, what, is, what does that mean? Lots of people talk about integration. Maybe you've heard the word integrity uh, thrown around a lot in Christian circles. Uh, best way that I can think of to illustrate integrity is um, in the winter of 2012, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'll never forget. I was, I was in a hotel lobby. I was traveling. That, it was about a year after we had moved to Indianapolis, almost exactly a year. We moved here in December of 2011. That was the winter of the Super Bowl, which wasn't really a winter. It was kind of like a, like a nice fall. It was very uh, warm that winter. And if you remember the next uh, December, uh, the uh, winter gods of Indianapolis punished us. Uh, just caveat, I know there's no winter gods, but they did punish us with about 20 inches of snow in like a 10-day period. And during that time period, when we got all that snow, I was in Little Rock uh, traveling to do some uh, like residency program for church planting to do some fundraising, and I got a call from my wife, and I picked up the phone, and the call went something like this. The post in our living room just exploded. Like literally, like pieces of drywall were exploding off of the post. We, we lived in a ranch at the time. We just bought our first house in Indianapolis. It was a nice little ranch. We loved it. My wife loves a ranch. And so most of our uh, activity took place in the living room there, uh, which was also the kitchen, which was also the dining room, which was also the laundry room. It's this big open space concept. And the post that anchored that big open space design floor concept literally began to uh, explode. And all of a sudden there were cracks going from this post throughout the entirety of our living space. And these little fissures became bigger cracks and then we noticed that simultaneously the post in our living room was, was literally collapsing into the ground. And we, it was just a crawl space underneath that space. So we called, uh, I didn't know there was such a thing or that you needed such a thing. We called somebody called a structural engineer. And structural engineers come and they, they look at the structural integrity of the house, which is to say each house is supposed to be built with a sense of structural integrity, meaning that it, it can bear the load without kind of fragmenting or dividing in ways that would compromise the, the structural integrity of the house. And so uh, through that process and talking to some of my neighbors, we learned that the guy before us, the family that lived there before us, had done some remodeling in the house. And uh, luckily for us, they didn't pull a permit. They didn't ask the city. They just went ahead and did it kind of according to the way they wanted to do it. Well, uh, rather than pulling a permit, he had knocked down a bunch of walls and taken two 23-foot beams in the attic and just basically leaned them up against each other. 
which if you know anything about construction, that's fine, except they're supposed to be joined together through a process called sistering. Now, don't ask me what sistering means. I just know it means they're supposed to be tied together in some kind of foundational way. So we have two, essentially two beams leaning on top of that post, pushing it into the ground. And oh, by the way, he forgot that underneath the post, you're actually supposed to go two feet into the ground and pour concrete with rebar so that you can uh, you know, kind of support the base of the foundation so that it doesn't sink into the ground from the weight of those beams. So about, I don't know, thousands of dollars later uh, and a couple of weeks later, we had fixed this compromise in the structure of our home and were able to salvage uh, our living room not collapsing. When I think of integrity, I think of something that's strong enough to bear the weight of stress in a way that the the core is not compromised. When I think about um, a home's integrity, it's so important because at those points of weakness, like under the post and above the post, there are vulnerabilities. And when the stress of life comes, you get 20 inches of snow in a short period of time. If you remember that winter, we actually got like, I don't remember what it was, like 60 or 70 inches of snow. It was the most snow we had had in decades in Indianapolis. When you put that kind of weight on it and there's not a strong foundation and there's no integrity, the structure is prone and vulnerable to attack. When I think about living a life of integrity, we often think of that in terms of like, you know, telling the truth. Be a person of integrity, tell the truth, and things like that. And that's not exactly wrong, but that's not the fullness of the definition of the way the Bible describes living with integrity. And it's so important in our relationships that we learn to live with integrity and integration. And let me give you a definition of the way I wanna explain this and define this today. Integrity, if you think about the roots of the word integrity, comes from our word integer. Any math teachers in here? Integer, right, there we go. And integer means what? Wholeness, as opposed to a fraction, as opposed to divided. It's a whole number. So the idea behind both integrity and integration is wholeness. Integrity is about wholeness through consistency. It's about living a consistent life, being the same on the inside as you are on the outside, not being a person of pretense, not living one way in private and another way in public. The opposite of integrity would be more like uh, inconsistency or living a divided life or a fragmented life or being a hypocrite. That's the opposite of integrity. Integration, similarly, though a little bit different, is about wholeness through harmony. So consistency and harmony are really what comprise integrity and integration. By integration, I mean like all the parts are working together to support the whole. They're aligned with one another. There's a coherence and that all of the aspects, if we apply that to ourselves, think about like a symphony, right? A symphony is a great example of integration. All the different instruments working together to produce a harmony as opposed to what you might hear. I, I, I love my sons. They're, they're in middle school band, uh, and I, I'm grateful for the effort that's put into middle school band, if you're a middle school band teacher. But if you've ever listened to a middle school band performance, it's a little rough on the ears. There's sometimes a cacophony of different instruments firing off at different pitches and all kinds of musical stuff I don't understand. All I know, it, it doesn't sound great all the time. But you go to the Indianapolis Symphony in a non-pandemic time, and you hear this beautiful music, this harmony, and that's the idea of integration, that all the parts of our being, all aspects of ourself are functioning together in a symphony. And it's flowing from this deep 
self that we have in Christ. So what I want to get at today, the big idea, if you're like a note taker, here's kind of the big idea of the message today. One of our key tasks as disciples of Jesus is to faithfully discover and live out our identity, what I'll call our true self in Christ, our identity and our calling and our relationships. One of our key tasks as disciples of Jesus is to faithfully discover and live out our identity, our true self in Christ, and our calling, our purpose, our mission in our relationships with one another. And what I'm, what I'm implying here, in case you're not picking up on this, is often we don't live with integrity. I don't live with integrity. I don't live with harmony and consistency in my relationships with others. And it's a threat to our relationships. When we live falsely, when, we, when we're not consistent, when we're not harmonious in our, in our self, and, and then we, we, we allow that to spill over into our relationships with other people, we threaten not only our own integrity, but the integrity of our relationships. Anybody ever experienced that? Somebody who lacked integrity, right? We all have experiences. We've all done that. We've all experienced that. Some of you experienced that from your parents. Some of you experienced that from your children, your grandchildren, your roommates. Some of your great hurts in life, some of your deepest wounds revolve around when people didn't live with integrity and integration. What we see here in Matthew chapter 16, how does this relate to Matthew 16? I was talking to uh, Miles and Joel, we were studying this passage and we were kind of talking through this and it's kind of the blank look came over, what does that have to do with Matthew 16? Uh, And so uh, what we see here in Matthew chapter 16 and really throughout the gospel of Matthew is Jesus as a model of integrity and integration. He knew who he was and he lived from the core of his identity as the beloved son of God. See, this passage is all about identity. This is the first time in the book of Matthew um, in Jesus' interaction with Peter. If you go to the preceding verses, uh, starting in verse 13, and you go all the way to verse uh, 26, this passage is all about identity. It's all about what it means to have a strong identity in Christ, to know who Jesus is, and then Jesus then turns it at the end, and we'll get there, and he talks about what it looks like for us to have a strong identity. So he, he starts with his identity. By the way, side note, this is the first and the only time in the book of Matthew Jesus discusses openly his identity with his disciples. He asks the question, who do you say that I am? Who do other people say that I am? And then he goes on to teach on what it looks like for them to find themselves in him. It's all about identity. See, he's been showing them throughout the book of Matthew that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and then he stops. I mean, Jesus is a master at this. This technique of discipleship is action reflection, right? He does something, then he steps back and he asks questions, trying to get them to own it for themselves. We talked about this last week. And then uh, Peter kind of pops off here, and Jesus has to kind of rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. It's an interesting wordplay. It's the same word for follow me. He says, get behind me, but not as a disciple, get behind me, Satan. Now, how is Jesus able to resist the pressure here? And what's fascinating here is the pressure comes not here in this passage from the religious leaders, from some other political party. The pressure to compromise his integrity comes from his closest friends and allies. 
Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says this very thing that some of our greatest temptations come from those whom we trust the most and who should know better, even our Christian friends. I, I want to just kind of take you on a quick journey and show you how Jesus got to this place where his identity was so rooted in who he was as the beloved son of God that he could resist these external forces that were constantly trying to rewrite his story and control his future and make him something that he wasn't. If you go back to the beginning of, of Matthew, let me just give you three little kind of um, outposts along the journey that Jesus took to get to this place. Because here's what we often forget. Jesus was not only fully God, he was fully human. And if Jesus was truly fully human, that means that his identity, his sense of self, had to develop and grow just like ours develops and grows. Now, how did that happen to where Jesus had a strong sense of who he was despite all of these forces around him? It starts back in Matthew chapter three. The first piece in Jesus' journey is that he received his identity from heaven, not from earth. Matthew chapter three, Jesus' baptism, if you remember the story, I forgot to actually put it up on the screen, but he goes to John the Baptist, his cousin, he says, to fulfill all righteousness, to be baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, remember that famous scene where Jesus is baptized? The, the, the father speaks, one of the only times the father speaks publicly and audibly in the gospels. And he says those beautiful words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. See, this is the foundation of Jesus's Identity. We don't know exactly at what point Jesus understood fully his identity as the Messiah and his humanity, but all scholars acknowledge that his baptism is the key event where his identity and his calling are publicly celebrated and personally internalized. And notice that before Jesus does anything, before he heals anybody, before he preaches the gospel to anybody, before he does anything else performance-wise, the father says, I love you. You're my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus' identity comes from above, from the voice of the father, not the voices around. And, and, his, and his identity is sealed inside. He gives him the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit rests on Jesus and empowers Jesus for a life of service in the world. That's foundational. Jesus goes on to talk about himself over and over again as the son of God, which in, in the Old Testament thinking was a moniker, was a, was a phrase that we use, was used for the Messiah. Second thing we see is that after this, at this point, right after this and throughout the rest of the book, there are powerful forces that try to sabotage Jesus' identity and his calling. It starts with Satan in the wilderness. Immediately he goes right from here, Matthew chapter four, out into the wilderness to do a battle with the evil one. And we see here that there are powerful spiritual forces at work tempting Jesus to disown his identity and his calling, to trade his true identity as the beloved son. Notice the words of Satan, if you know the story of Matthew chapter four. What does he say? If you are the son of God. So he plays on his true identity, but then he twists it with these temptations to trade his true identity for a pseudo-identity. And the three temptations, you could say, are to build an identity on his performance that would give him power, turn these stones into bread. 
The second temptation was one of popularity. Build your life on what others think of you. Throw yourself off the temple. Do something spectacular and amazing so everyone will go, oh, this is the son of God. The third temptation was one of finding his identity in his possessions. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You, you are what you have. Jesus refuses this identity and, this, and, and the evil one leaves him. And then we see that throughout the rest of his life, Jesus' commitment to living faithfully to his identity and his calling also put him in conflict with powerful generational forces, social forces, religious forces. It seems everybody had an agenda for Jesus, who he should be, what he should do in the world. And so Jesus was constantly disappointing people. He disappointed his family, his mom and his dad and brothers and sisters. At one point in Mark chapter three, this happens on multiple occasions, but Mark chapter three twenty one, they actually accuse him of being crazy, being out of his mind. He disappoints the people in his hometown. Luke chapter four, they get so mad at him for claiming to be the Messiah, they try to throw him off a cliff and somehow he evades the crowd and does, I don't, I don't know how he does that. He disappoints the religious leaders who wanted him to kind of just follow the status quo. They call him a demon. They say you have a demon, John chapter eight. And eventually we see in this story that he disappoints even his closest friends and his disciples who also have an agenda for him. Third thing that we see in the life of Jesus in terms of the, the emerging of his identity and his calling is that Jesus would often withdraw from the crowds into silence and solitude, one of his favorite practices, especially in the midst of busyness, to listen to his father's voice and stay in touch with his true identity getting away from the crowds, refusing to acquiesce to what others want him to be, he would withdraw. And I'm gonna teach on this in a few weeks, so I'm, I'm not gonna do it here. But he would withdraw into a solitary place or a lonely place to pray, not just to be alone because he's an introvert, but to pray and hear from God and to listen to the voice of his father so that as he's in the world, he has power to sustain his identity and calling and not succumb to these temptations to be something other than he is. So we see here in this story, Jesus disappointing his own, his own disciples. We see these temptations to not be who he is, to be inauthentic to his identity and his calling coming from his own boys, his disciples. See, this is the first time in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus begins to unpack his mission of not only being the Christ, but defining what kind of Christ he was gonna be, what kind of Messiah he was gonna be. See, the, the word Messiah was loaded with all kinds of expectations. When you said Messiah to a Jew, it had political ramifications. It was to speak of a warrior king, the first half of Isaiah, who would come and slay their enemies, who would deliver them from bondage and oppression, who would deliver them in this context from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Except they missed the second half of Isaiah. The second half of Isaiah talks about that Messiah as a suffering Messiah. And so this transition in Matthew here is the pivot of the book. Notice what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show or to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, not to win through triumphalism and dominance and violence. That's not the kind of king he came to be this time. But to suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leadership, the lay people, the pastors, the Bible scholars, the seminary professors, they were the ones who were gonna kill Jesus. And on the third day be raised. Peter, 
Peter's like, uh-uh, no. That's not the kind of Messiah I signed up to follow. I, I, I'm, a, yeah, I'm a zealot. I signed up to follow the one who's going to ride in on a war horse, waving the flags of the kingdom, announcing that violence is here and it's time to overthrow the prevailing powers and institutions and authorities. And so P, Peter, who had just, by the way, this is like just before this, he had confessed, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus goes, great job, jo- uh, great job, Peter. You're right. But notice in verse 20, you ever thought about why? Verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would he do that? I think it's obvious, isn't it? Because they didn't really know who he was. He says, don't go out and preach about me because what you think I am is not actually who I am. Wait to go preach until you see what happens here in a couple days and weeks. The rock, Peter, gets it wrong. And there's an interesting wordplay. Peter, his name is Petros, which also in the Greek means rock. You are the rock, Peter, and yet Peter, in a strange twist of irony, Jesus says, becomes a hindrance. The word there is literally a stumbling block. Isn't that amazing, like, how we can do that with Jesus? One day we can be rocks, and the next day we can be stumbling blocks. The greatest impediment to the mission of Jesus here is the very foundation of the church. Peter takes Jesus aside. Another voice telling Jesus who he should try to become. Oh God, have mercy on you, Peter says, quoting an Old Testament passage. He takes him aside and he, and he, and he tries to essentially correct Jesus. This word taking aside throughout the Bible is used of a richer and more powerful person rescuing a weaker and more vulnerable person. See, Jesus here is playing rescuer. You see, Jesus, you don't understand what the Messiah is supposed to be. Let me help you understand the pathway. Jesus is still bought into this narrative of strength and power and victory. And in this moment of misplaced triumphalism, Peter does what we all do with Jesus. He attempts to rewrite Jesus' story to protect Jesus from, you know, getting it wrong, recreating Jesus in his own image according to his own expectations in an attempt to control Jesus' future. Does that sound familiar? Of course, Jesus recognizes that voice. It's not the voice of Peter that he's most concerned about. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. I know that voice trying to manipulate me, trying to call me away from the cross, trying to call me to the easy life, trying to call me to victory and triumph without, and glory without cross and without suffering and without death. And that's not the way of the kingdom. That's to have your mind fixed on human concerns, not on the concerns of God. And so Jesus refuses to compromise his identity and his calling. And we don't have time to get into this, but, but Jesus here is, is the model for what it looks like to live with integration. He says, this is who I am, and you're not gonna persuade me otherwise, Peter, so get behind me, Satan. I can't compromise who I am. I must live with integrity and integration. Peter, by contrast, is a model of disintegration and division. We see this as a huge struggle. If Jesus is the perfect model for integration, Peter is the perfect model 
for our journey as disciples and our struggle to live as Jesus lives. Peter struggled to live with integrity and integration, consistency and harmony. Notice one moment he confesses Jesus is the Christ. He's ready to go, for war, to go to war with Jesus when they come to arrest him and he slices a guy's ear off. And the next moment, he's standing by a fireside disowning Jesus. Why? Because of fear, the fear of man. He's one way privately, another way publicly. He had this need to appease other people. Later, we'll read about his struggles in another context with this very same thing in the church in Galatia. Remember the story in Galatians chapter two? I'll throw it up on the screen. Jesus is eating with the Gentiles, a no-no for good Jews, and the Judaizers show up, and they say, hey, Peter, what are you doing breaking bread, eating a ham sandwich with these non-Jews? Peter begins to back away from the table. Even though he had previously been doing it in private, now when it came public, when it got out on social media that he had been doing X, Y, and Z with Gentiles, all of a sudden he begins to go, no, that's not me. I'm clean. I'm kosher. Paul calls him out. He says, you're not living with integrity. And I love the way that Paul says it. He doesn't just say you're not living with integrity. He says there, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, you're not living in accordance with the truth of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, of the good news that God has come to reconcile all people. So he's got not just a personal problem with Peter's standard, he's got a theological problem with Peter. You're not living with integrity. You're not living with integration. You're still appeasing people. The reality is we all face the same struggle. We are Peter, not Jesus. You realize that? Like, we wanna read ourselves into this story as Jesus, and we wanna think about, right now, like the temptation is for you to go, oh man, if my parents would just listen to the sermon. I wish my spouse was just here to listen to the sermon. I wish my sister was here to listen to the sermon. My brother was here to listen to the sermon. My, My family is actually listening to the sermon, unfortunately for me. But we wanna think of ourselves as Jesus and then run to all the people that are Peter, in our lives, but the reality is we are Peter. We face the same struggle <clears throat> to live from a core of who we are, to not allow our true self in Christ, our identity and our calling to be colonized, colonized by the powerful social and spiritual forces outside of us and also the powerful forces and voices inside of us. Like Peter, this happens slowly over time We begin to compromise our integrity. We don't even realize that we're like fish in water. We can't even see that it's happening. All the tense of the language here uh, is an imperfect tense verbs. Peter began to do this. It was a slow fade of a loss of integrity and integration. And all of a sudden he found himself compromising, not in line with the gospel, not in line with reality. And we do the same thing. These small temptations, these subtle compromises, often through the soft influence of our context in which we live, the narratives that we imbibe, the things that we allow ourselves implicitly to believe without challenging. We, we grow up in a certain kind of family, to learn to think a certain kind of way. Then we go off and we go to IU, and, and we, we imbibe kind of a cultural narrative about what it means to be human, about what it means to flourish. And all of a sudden, this here, the Bible becomes something old school, something irrelevant, something repressive that we have to cast off. And the reality is we're just trading one identity for another. 
It happens through the soft influence of living in an upper middle class neighborhood like Broderville, where kind of the narratives of comfort and security and ease and homogeneity can take root in our souls. And begin to think the good life is living in a certain kind of house, making a certain amount of money, driving certain kind of cars. The soft influence of progressivism in our neighborhood, right? When many of us are worried about compromise on the right, we're worried about compromise um, with nationalism and all these things, and rightly so. We've talked about that as a church, but what about the other side of that? What about this desire that some of us have to be on the right side of history? And, and it's amazing how our values get shaped by our context, and we find ourselves living and thinking like everyone else in Broad Ripple, many of whom are not even Christians. We're shaped by social media, the soft influence of YouTube, our workplaces, and all of a sudden we find ourselves living compromised lives, living lives of disintegration, division, So the question becomes, how do we live with integrity, right? We want to live from a true sense of who we are in Christ and for our lives to actually reflect that. And it's so hard. It's hard to swim upstream. It's hard to maintain your convictions when all of these forces, and by the way, they're not just social forces. These ideologies, these deceptions, these narratives, the soft power that influences us, the Bible says it's satanic, right? Like there, there's spiritual warfare happening here. We don't battle against flesh and blood. <clears throat> Our primary battle is powers and principalities. That's what animates these ideologies, politically or otherwise. So how do we live with integrity and integration? That's the question before us. Jesus shows us the way to do that. He shows us what it looks like, not just to live with this kind of identity, but actually build this kind of identity for ourselves. So one of his more famous teachings in in, in all of the Gospels, this is one of the few that's repeated and said in all four Gospels, comes on the heels of this encounter with Peter. Peter, you're not living in line with the truth. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you what it means to live with integrity and integration. Then he teaches them how to do it for themselves. He doesn't leave us on our own to figure it out or build our own identity. Notice what he says in verse 24. Jesus said to the disciples, all those who just heard him rebuke Peter, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus tells us how to find an identity for ourselves, how to live out of a sense of integrity and integration with an identity. Notice how many times in this passage he talks about the self. That word life there can be translated, it's the word psyche, the word we get, our word psyche, it's suke in the Greek. It's the word from which we get psychology. Eugene Peterson, I think, rightly translates this another way, is not just saving our life, but Saving our soul, saving our self is another way that you could translate that, although they would have taken issue with some of the ways that we define the self in a modern context. But nonetheless, he's talking about how to build an identity. Two things that I think Jesus wants us to hear. One, we must discover our true identity in Christ. If we're gonna live from the place of integration, from a place of integrity, we must claim our identity, our deepest identity as being in Christ. Because just like Jesus, again, there are powerful social, spiritual, 
religious voices at work in the world trying to persuade us to live out of a false or a partial, right? We have partial identities, pseudo-identities, sometimes even outright lies. Like, how would you answer the question? How does our culture answer the question, who are you? Who am I? There's all kinds of voices in that marketplace trying to tell us who we are. And like Jesus, our identity must come from heaven. It must be deeply sealed within us by the Holy Spirit, not the earth. It must come from heaven, not from the earth. We have a tendency to build and construct false identities, partial identities, to root our sense of self in things other than heavenly voices, but rather earthly voices that tell us who we should be and what we should do. I've just listed a few on the screen here to show you some examples of different ways that we in our modern world, some of these are old temptations, performance, I am what I do, I am my job, I am my career, I am my art, I am my music, I am my children, I I am what I do. Possessions, these are the same temptations Jesus faced. I am what I have, I am what I drive, I am what I possess, my personality, whatever. Popular opinion, I am what others think of me, I am what others need me to be. Pleasure, this is a modern one, after the enlightenment. I am what I desire. I, I, I am my sexuality, and I build my identity on my sexuality. Political ideology is not a new one, but it's resurfacing again. I am my platform. I am a Democrat. I am a conservative. I am a progressive. I'm none of that. I'm a moderate. I'm not into politics, but it's still a platform. It's an ideology. Or the most dangerous, I think, of these, and one we're really facing right now this moment of Polarization is the negative identity, the anti-identity. I am not this. And you build your identity on what you're against, what you're not. I'm not a Democrat. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't vote for Biden. I'm not uh, gay. I am, like, we, 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 we build an identity on being against. And what happens is none of these things are inherently wrong, right? Like, they're good in and of themselves. Performance is not bad. I'm certainly not saying don't perform. Possession's not bad. Sometimes popular opinion can be helpful. Pleasure, not bad. God created us for pleasure, to be happy and whole. Politics, not bad. But what happens, let me show you this next slide. What happens is that we take these secondary identities, these tertiary identities, and we try to pull them into the center of who we are. We're always tempted, there's a gravitational pull for these identities to move from the outer ring into the core. And so I build my identity on my family or my tribe, my ideology, my gender, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm something in between. I'm personality, my, I am my personality, I'm an Enneagram three, I'm an eight, I'm a one. My pain, my sexuality, I mean all these, so there's this temptation to allow these identities to colonize us and to center our identity on these things rather than in Christ. Now here's the thing, they're all partially true. I am white, I am a man, I am educated, I'm a father, I'm a husband. Those are all partially true, but they're not the deepest truth about me. And if I collapse my identity into any of those things, I am building my identity on something that's not, I mean, Kierkegaard said this hundreds of years ago, you are building your identity on something that is feeble and fragile and will not last. There will come a day when I will no longer be a husband, I'm gonna die. There will come a day when I'm no longer a pastor, And if I center my identity on being a pastor, what happens after I'm a pastor? This is what happens to many people in their 50s and 60s when they retire. 
And all of a sudden, it's, if I'm not a CEO, if I'm not a manager, if I'm not a construction guy, what am I? They're too unstable. So Jesus invites us. He says, don't build your identity on any of those things. The invitation is Jesus says, lose yourself. And, and, and what he's saying there, don't misunderstand this. Probably one of the most misinterpreted passages of scripture. When he says, lose yourself, he's, and he says, deny yourself, he doesn't mean obliterate yourself. He doesn't mean become a non-self. Just merge, conform to the cultural characteristics of your community, of the majority culture. He's not saying sublimate yourself, repress yourself, obliterate yourself. What he's saying is deny yourself so that you can save your life in me. To deny yourself, that word deny literally means to cancel an allegiance to. It doesn't mean give up yourself and just merge or enmesh with other people so that you don't have convictions and values. And like, isn't it amazing in church how we, that's called a cult. We do this in church. It's like to be a Christian means you look and you do it this way and you sing this kind of music and you speak this way and you have these kind of preferences. That's a cult. If you find yourself in a church doing that, run. And what Jesus says is stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to build an identity on something other than me. Cancel allegiance to your own personal happiness program, right? Because it doesn't matter. You can gain the whole world and still lose yourself. So what he's, the invitation is find yourself in me. Find yourself in me. This word here for find is the word herisco, from which we get our word eureka. It's the same word for discover. Discover yourself in me. Find what's already here. It's a paradox. It's already there. You've been found in Christ. Now figure that out. Essentially what he's saying. Discover your true self in Christ. Let the cross so deeply shape your sense of self that when you suffer, when life gets hard, when you have to be differentiated from the crowd, you become like Jesus. When you live with integrity, you become like Jesus. Because in becoming like Jesus, you're becoming the most true version of yourself. Don't lose yourself coming to Jesus. You become the truest version of yourself. And that's why the invitation throughout the New Testament is to find yourself in Christ. Your deepest identity, your deepest calling will only be found in him. And then what that does in those concentric circles is when Jesus, can you go back to that slide? When Jesus is in the center, it reorganizes and reorients all these other identities around Jesus and puts them in their proper place. So yes, I'm white, I'm male, I'm educated, I'm a father, I'm a husband, but I'm a Christian first. And that gives definition and meaning and relativizes these other identities. So I don't have to be ashamed. I can live in the freedom of my true self in Christ. Paul says, essentially in the book of Ephesians, he spends three chapters saying, you are in Christ, you are in Christ, you are in Christ. Then in chapter four, after all these indicatives, he gives the imperatives, now live this way, live out your calling. That's the big message of Ephesians. One through three, here is your identity in Christ. Four through six, now live out your calling as a disciple of Jesus. Same thing Jesus is saying here. Give up trying to save yourself, find yourself in me, and then go follow me into your purpose and your calling in the world. This is what it means to live a life, as, as Paul says in Colossians, that's hidden in Christ with God. That's an authentic life. That's a true life. David Benner, in one of my favorite books on this subject, says this. 
It's a Christian author. The true self is who in reality you are and who you are becoming. It is not something you need to construct through a process of self-improvement or deconstruct by means of psychological analysis. It is not an object to be grasped, nor is it an archetype to be actualized. It is not even some inner hidden part of you. Rather, it is your total self as you are created by God and as you are being redeemed in Christ. It is the image of God that you are, the unique face of God that has been set aside from eternity to you. Friends, discover that identity in Christ and you will be free. You will be free from the voices of the crowd. You will be free from the voices of satanic influences that try to get you to compromise your integrity, to live and to pretend so that you can project an image to other people of who you are when it's not really who you are. You're enslaved, you're in bondage, Paul says. And when we find that identity, then secondly, it allows us to live out our calling faithfully in the world, right? Jesus says, follow me, follow me into this calling. Now that you know who you are and you found yourself in me, your identity is cross-shaped, it's cruciform, you know this pattern of dying and being raised to life, you are my disciple, Here are, here's your calling, here's your purpose in life. It's an, we, we use an old word in the church called vocation. Vocation comes from a word that just means calling. It's used all throughout the New Testament. And it, by the way, it's not your career. Your career can be expression of your calling. Your job can be an expression, but it's not the totality of your calling. Let me just list these on the screen because we're out of time. Three callings that we have. The calling to be human. I have to say that because Christians try to live as if they're not human sometimes. We can transcend limitations. We forget that we too are image bearers in need of a savior. We have limitations. We're finite. We're not robots. We're not angels. We're not animals. We are dust and spirit. We are humans. We ought to be the example for the rest of the world of what it means to truly be human. To be in Jesus is to not cease being human, but to be fully human. Secondly, we're called to be Christians. And this is going to put us at odds with the world, right? Because if we're in Christ and we carry the values of the king, we're learning to be with Jesus, become like him, do what he did in the world. It's going to put us at odds with the culture around us. It's going to put us at odds with some of our university professors, some of our networking friends. It's going to put us at odds in our workplaces over values and ethics and all kinds of decisions we have to make to be true and to not compromise. And you know what that's like. You know what it's like to be in the boardroom. You know what it's like to be a parent. You know what it's like to be on a college campus and be tempted to compromise. And that's why it's so important that we learn a skill, again, I'm just throwing it up on the screen, called differentiation. It was first uh, put out there by a guy named Murray Bowen, who's a psychologist uh, and the kind of father of the modern family systems theory. But it's this simply thing, the capacity to define your own life goals and values apart from the pressures of those around you. This is what Jesus was doing. This is who I am. This is what it means to be the beloved son of God on mission for God. I'll just fill these up. But let's next screen. Look at these characteristics. A guy named Edwin Freeman wrote a book called The Failure of Nerve, one of the best books on leadership that I know of. And he talks about what it looks like to live a differentiated life. It includes things like being able to take a stand in intense emotional systems, saying I when others are demanding we. Maintaining a non-anxious presence, knowing where you end and somebody else begins. Taking responsibility for your being rather than blaming others for your problems. 
This is what it means to live a differentiated life as a disciple. And then finally, we're called to be our own unique self. We're called to be ourselves. We're called with a calling that God has on our lives. And so not only do we have to differentiate in the world and society, we have to differentiate in the church. Because the pressure is to constantly claim somebody else's goals as my own, somebody else's values as my own. And that's gonna look different for each person. Your goals, your values, your convictions, your personality, your desires, the givens of your life are gonna look different than somebody else's. And so I can't live your story and you can't live mine. And for you to try to force me to live your story is to violate the image of God in me. And for me to try to do that to you is to try to play savior in your life. And yet this is what I see so much of in our community. It's why we can't exist in diverse communities right now. We live polarized. One of the primary characteristics of an undifferentiated society and church is we live polarized. We can't exist with people who challenge things and look at things differently than we do. This is a a fundamental skill right now in the moment in which we live. And Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, you worry about your story, Peter, and I'll worry about John's. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He says in Romans 14, who are you to judge your brother and stand over them? Each person will fall and rise before their own master. You welcome one another as you've been welcomed in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to live as your children. We want to live lives of integrity. We want to live lives of integration in our relationships with each other. Consistency, harmony, to live out our identity, our true selves in Christ, to find ourselves in our deepest identities in Christ and not in anything else or anyone else. God, give us, give us the ability to listen to your voice. God, this is a supernatural thing, to listen for your voice in a competing marketplace with so many voices. God, help us to hear the voice that comes from above, the voice that comes from within, from the spirit, Paul says, that lives in us as, an, as the deposit of our inheritance, sealing us and sealing our identity and our calling in eternity. God, would you make that known to us progressively over time as we surrender more of ourselves to you? Help us to live from that true center in Christ. God, forgive us for, for our idolatries. Forgive us for living without integrity, for living hypocritically, for living inconsistently. God, we know this is only possible through the power of Jesus in us. But God, we want to be your disciples. We want to live these kind of lives, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. So God, teach us what it looks like to live in this way, in the way of Jesus. We pray, amen.